Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the We Shall Not Sleep podcast. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, and thank you for your patience. This one's a little bit later, and uh, we've had a full day, and goodness, uh, these weeks are just flying by, and I promise you by the next time that you tune in uh, to the show, uh, we are going to have a couple of guests. I'm not going to tell you who or what yet, but it's going to be fun, so... Uh, we're getting back to some guest interviews. I cannot wait, so please tune in. Uh, find us wherever you get your podcasts, uh, whatever that is, however um, that is. Uh, I just uh, ask that you continue to support the show. Thank you so much. Uh, find us on Facebook. Uh, we're hosted on SoundCloud, and you can find us on our YouTube channel. Uh, tonight, I actually want to read an excerpt here, and actually the, its entirety. Um, we have the privilege. I, I'm I'm very close in proximity, and I've had the, the privilege of having a private tour of the campus as well as know some alumni from Hillsdale College, uh, an incredibly important institution down in Hillsdale, Michigan, same county in which I, uh, my church is in. And I was given uh, the full transcript here by a friend of the commencement address from the class of 2023. I wanted to read it for you. Um, it was given by uh, Robert Barron, who is the bishop of the Diocese of Winona, Rochester, in Minnesota, and founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Uh, he uh, is an ordained bishop uh, in 2015, and he served uh, auxiliary bishop of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles from 2015 to 2022. And uh, this guy, he's received a Bachelor of Arts and a Master's of Arts from the Catholic University of America, uh, his STL from Mundelein Seminary, and his PhD from the Institute of Catholique de Paris, um, and so he was taught as a visiting professor at the University of Notre Dame and the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas and was twice scholar in residence at the Pontifical North American College at the Vatican. Um, so, and I, I mean, I'm not Catholic and I think there's a lot of things wrong, especially at the highest levels of the Catholic church. Uh, but this guy right here, man, he is, uh, experienced well-educated, and he certainly knew his audience. And so I want to read for you the entirety of this speech. It is amazing. Um, it's one of the best things I have read in quite some time. It's going to take me a second to get through all this, um, but I just want you to sit back with, um, and listen to, to this. Think about where our world is today. Think about the young people, wherever you're at, um, whether this is you, you are in college, uh, in high school, or you think back about this time about that time in your life, or maybe you can think about what your goals are in 2024. So as you're listening to this, put yourself in the shoes of somebody, like all of us, all your fellow brothers and sisters. We're all trying to do our best, at least hopefully, and we all have a job to do here on this planet. Therefore, what God has called us to and what we can do starting now is being good stewards. We don't have to wait. We can start renewing and reclaiming back the life God has called us to immediately. We do not have to wait. And so even though this message was, I mean, yes, it's to undergrads and it's to 20-somethings, young, young 20, 22, 23-year-olds, it's still very much applicable for us today. So without further ado, it's entitled, The Most Important Decision in Life. It says, congratulations to the Hillsdale College class of 2023. 
It is a thrill to be here at Hillsdale, which I have heard about for a long time. Last night, I had a wonderful tour of campus, and the evening culminated in a concert in your beautiful chapel. The concert included Mahler's first symphony played by the student orchestra and was just marvelous. When I was a theology professor, I taught a course on the Reformation for many years, taking seriously the works of Luther and, Luther and Calvin and other reformers. I believe the questions the reformers raise, questions that will divide the churches, uh, are important. But right now, all of us who believe in God, our disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, have a common enemy in the agnosticism, atheism, and nihilism that are deeply affecting our culture and especially the minds of young people. I believe it is important for us to join together in common cause against this common enemy. And it is in that spirit that I come before you today. So he's basically acknowledging the fact that if we're all, we all call ourselves servants of God, then we have uh, this brotherhood that we, are, that we are called to. We are kindred spirits. We are each other's family. And we have a con common enemy, uh, that being, again, agnosticism. So I don't really know what I believe. Atheism. God absolutely doesn't exist. Nihilism. Truly, there's no hopelessness, so throw your hands up and just, that's it. And so, he says, it is in that spirit that I come before you. It's this, I, this idea of unity. So, you have a Catholic speaking to Protestants, and he's saying, you know what, basically, I know my audience. I, I don't want to talk about our differences because we have so much in common. He goes on. He says, it is to the permanent honor of this college that it was founded almost 180 years ago by free will Baptists who were committed to the abolition of slavery. Hillsdale's founders were on the right side of the most compelling moral debate of the 19th century, and it is worth remarking that the leadership of this college today finds itself on the right side of the most pressing ethical argument of our time, namely the protection of the unborn. Frederick Douglass, a former slave who became one of the most eloquent advocates for abolition in the 19th century, spoke here in 1863, just after the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation. In the course of his lecture, Popular Error and Unpopular Truth, he remarked, quote, There is no such thing as new truth. Error might be old or new, but truth is as old as the universe. End quote. At the heart of the Hillsdale College curriculum is a presentation of these truths, epistemic, moral, and aesthetic, that are indeed as old as the universe, permanent things that participate in the eternity of God. What I should like to do briefly in this commencement address is examine just one of these truths which is articulated over and over again in the great Western intellectual tradition, is typically accessed by means of a question. Not the question of what we are to do, as important as that is, but rather what kind of person we ought to be. So this is, this is a question about ontology, or in the, that's the discipline in philosophy, uh, in the branch of um, philosophy that it talks about being. So you can do something, but who you are, who are you as a person? That's what he's going to talk about, character formation. He asks, do we hunger and thirst for righteousness? Or do we seek our own advantage? In a way, there is no question in the moral and spiritual order more fundamental than that. A locus classicus for studying this question is found in Plato's Gorgias. In this dialogue, the character Gorgias is a sophist, which is to say an expert in teaching the art of persuasive speech. Paulus and Callicles are his students. Their concern is not being truthful or just but, Excuse me. Their concern is not being truthful or just, but rather speaking in such a way that they appear truthful or just and hence become convincing to others. So isn't that true of our world today where we're taught to market ourselves with social media? It's the, the virtue is placed on 
looking and acting like the part, not being the part. So he's making a phenomenal, phenomenal connection to what I, I think a lot of what diagnoses our problems today. Again, what, what is real? What is not? Well, it doesn't really matter what is true. It's what the image I can be either projecting myself, what, what a company can project, or uh, we have that wonderful phrase, virtue signaling. It's not about being the thing. It's about looking good. So that's what he's talking about here. He says, such sophists were obviously enough enormously useful to prospective lawyers and politicians in ancient Greece, and it should be equally obvious that their intellectual descendants are rather thick on the ground today. Socrates counters Gorgias and his students along these lines. If a rhetorician teaches a politician to do what is unjust, he does that man in his city far more harm than good. To this, Paulus answers by a means of a taunt. Wouldn't Socrates leap at the opportunity of having the power of life and death over others? No, Socrates says in response, for to put someone to death unjustly is in fact no power at all. And it is at that point that Socrates enunciates one of his most enduring teachings, a teaching that represents a watershed in the moral conscience of the West. It is better, he says, to suffer wrongdoing than to do wrong oneself. So very much sacrificial. I, I would rather be the victim of something wrong than to do something wrong to somebody else. Kind of like the it's the reverse. It's like the consequences of the golden rule and people take advantage of you. Again, Jesus talks about this, you know, turn the other cheek. So if a, rhetor, if a rhetorician teaches a politician to, to do what is unjust, he does that man in his city far more harm than good. So you're teaching someone to do things negative. What Socrates and what um, our, our gentleman, Mr. Barron, is saying here is that if we're going to form our character, would we rather suffer versus actually dulling out unjust points? At this point, Callicles can no longer restrain himself, giving clear voice to a position that endures to the present day. He says that what Socrates is calling justice is nothing but the constraints placed on the few strong by the many weak. It is sort of a guilt trip imposed by the powerless to limit the capacity of the powerful to get what they want. If you notice a tight connection between this point of view and the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, you're not wrong. Socrates' argument for his position is simple. Surely suffering injustice is terrible, but what is worse is the corrosion of the soul that takes place when one commits injustice. In other words, being unjust is far more damaging to the moral structure of a person's character than enduring the slings and arrows of injustice. So there's the question, young graduates. What kind of soul will you have? What kind of person will you be? Will you do whatever it takes to get what you want? Or will you accept even great suffering in order to do what is right? Everything else in your life will flow from that answer to that question. I know that Hillsdale College is committed to the study of the Greco-Roman intellectual tradition, and it is for that reason that I commenced with Plato. But Hillsdale is also, above all, committed to the scriptures. The Bible gets at this very same issue, not so much through philosophical argumentation, but through the prophetic language of idolatry and right worship. For the biblical authors, it is never a question of religion versus secularism. First of all, they were not trading in what we call religion, and secondly, they knew that there really is no pure secularism. Rather, they understood that the world is basically divided between those who worship the one true God and those who indulge in idolatry or false worship. Even our supposedly secular society, we can appreciate the appropriateness of the biblical terminology. For everyone, even the most unchurched, operates under the aegis of something he or she considers supreme. A summon bonum, or highest good. 
sumum, sorry, sumum bonum. I'm not good with my Latin. I never took Latin. No one would get out of bed in the morning unless he believed in some value that he is ultimately motivating his actions and decisions. This might be bodily pleasure or fame or material goods, or it might be one's country or family. But if it is functioning as the prime mover of a person's activity, is playing the role of a god, and it is being, in effect, worshipped. So the biblical form of the question we have been considering is, whom or what do you worship? Again, everything in your life will flow from your answer. I've actually talked about this very thing here on this podcast. So what type of character? Would you be the one to suffer injustice versus commit injustice? And whom or what do you worship? So we're talking about character and talking about motive here. There are numberless biblical texts that are relevant to this question. But I should like to look at a particular clarifying and dramatic one, namely the scene described in the first book of Kings regarding Elijah and the priests of Baal. We recall the setting. Elijah had called out King Ahab for his worship of the false gods proposed by his wife Jezebel. He subsequently challenged the avatars of these deities to to a kind of duel on Mount Carmel. Standing alone against the 450 devotees of Baal, Elijah proposed that he and they should erect altars to their respective deities and see uh, who would respond. All morning long, the priests cried out, O Baal, answer us. But the Bible says there was no voice and no answer. At this point, Elijah mocked them. Cry aloud, surely he is a god. Either he is meditating or he has wandered away or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. In their frenzy and frustration, the priests of Baal proceeded to cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed all over them. But it was to no avail. Then, of course, Elijah calls out to the Lord and the fire falls, consuming the sacrifice and vindicating the prophet. What I would like to emphasize is that this is much more than a a jinganistic story of my God is bigger than your God. In point of fact, it is incomparably rich presentation of the dynamics of true and false worship. The altar erected to Baal should be taken as standing for all the ways in which we order the infinite longing of our hearts to something less than God. When we do this, the fire never falls because merely worldly things cannot, even in principle, satisfy our hunger, our, our hungry souls. And, we would, and when we persist in worshiping falsely, we find ourselves, in short order, caught in an addictive pattern, hoping obsessively hopping obsessively, excuse me, as it were, around the altar of pleasure, power, or fame, desperately seeking a satisfaction that will never come. The self-harm inflicted by the hapless priests of Baal speaks eloquently to the destructive quality to which any addict can attest. Only when the fondest desire of our soul is directed to the infinite God will the fire fall and addiction be avoided. So once again, young graduates, the question is simple. At which altar will you worship? Your whole life will unfold for weal or for woe from that decision. It would be like to see the place where Plato and Elijah come together. We need look no further than the cross of Jesus, which St. Paul described as a divine weakness stronger than human strength and a divine folly wiser than human wisdom. Where can we find a clear instantiation of the principle that is better to suffer injustice than to commit it than in Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Sinless, blameless, He nevertheless took upon himself all the sin of the world. Hatred, cruelty, stupidity, violence, institutional corruption, betrayal, denial, all of it. But rather than lashing out and answering violence, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
laboring under the full weight of human wickedness, his soul remained invalid. And this is why, to the consternation of all the advocates of might makes right, from Calicles to Nietzsche, we hold up the cross and say, Ecce homo, behold the true man. My intellectual hero, St. Thomas Aquinas, said that if we want to live a happy life, we should love what Jesus loved on the cross and despise what he despised on the cross. What did he despise but all of those objects of false worship to which we tend to erect altars? Many of us worship wealth, but on the cross he was utterly poor. Stripped naked, but many of us worship pleasure, but on the cross he was at the limit of suffering, both physical and psychological. Many of us worship power, but on the cross he was nailed in place, unable even to move. And many of us worship honor, but on that terrible cross he was the object of scorn and ridicule. In short, the crucified Lord said no as radically as possible to the idols. But what did he love on the cross? He loved doing the will of his Father. The cross itself functioned on the, or, excuse me, the cross itself functioned as the altar in which the sacrifice of his life to the Father took place. And this is why the fire fell. The 1966 film, A Man for All Seasons, based on Robert Bolt's play of the same name, tells the story of St. Thomas More, a man well acquainted with the philosophies of classical antiquity and a man in love with Lord Jesus. One of the last scenes of the film depicts the dramatic trial of More under accusation for high treason. Richard Rich, who, who as a young man had been Thomas More's friend and protege, falsely testifies against him perjuring himself and practically guaranteeing that Moore will receive the death penalty. As Rich is leaving the courtroom, Moore notices that the younger man is wearing a chain of office. Inquiring of the judges what the symbol at the end of the chain means, Moore receives the answer. Sir, Richard is appointed Attorney General for Wales. Moore grasps the pendant and with a look more pitying than indignant comments, Why, Richard, it profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world, but for Wales? He's basically mocking the fact that you basically sold your soul for nothing. I, people sell their soul for the world, but you sold it for less. Moore was not such blaming Rich as noticing with infinite sadness the kind of person he had become, a man with a corroded soul. It might have been otherwise. In a lesser-known scene from earlier in the film, Moore suggests Rich pursue a job as a humble teacher, but Rich, ambitious for glory at the king's court, balks. The wise Moore says, you'd be a fine teacher, perhaps a great one. His protege retorts angrily, If I was, who would know it? More patiently responds, You, your pupils, your friends, God. Not a bad public, that. This exchange provides us a third way of asking ourselves a question. To which audience, finally, are you playing? A lost soul plays to the endlessly fickle audience of the world, hoping thereby to acquire the fleeting goods that the world can provide. The uncorroded soul plays to God and to the friends of God, seeking to please them alone. St. John Paul II, in his writings on the moral life, observed that in every particular ethical choice a person makes, he's doing two things simultaneously. He's performing a moral act with definite consequences, and he is making his character, crafting, little by little, the person he is becoming. I have the confident hope that, you, that your years at Hillsdale College have prepared you, above all, to shape your characters to become the kind of men and women who would rather endure just injustice rather than commit injustice, who would never dream of worshiping at the altar of an idol, and who wouldn't surrender the integrity of your souls for the whole world. And if you become the persons God intends you to be, you will succeed in lighting a fire upon the earth. 
<clears throat> I had my parents read that because we, we share a lot of good things back and forth. And it's just simple. What's our motivation? Are, 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 what type of people are we becoming every day? Are we worshiping ourselves, worshiping something that is godly or not? And what is our price point? Do we have one? Are we willing to sell our souls to, to gain a profit? Here's some great questions. I, I hope that this has given you some food for thought tonight. It's a little bit longer of an episode. Uh, and more stuff is coming. Seriously, like I'm, I'm looking forward to this podcast and re, reinvesting into it. Thank you so much for riding with us tonight. I hope you have a good uh, rest of your night and wherever you're listening to this, the rest of this week. May God bless you. May God keep you.